0: Be ready for change, get comfortable where you are, but always have it in the back of your mind that everything could shift and change. And we're at the whims of the world sometimes and it's not in our control. So pivot gracefully, stay humble. And by that, I mean, not only don't be a jerk, but also it means stay humble to what you don't know. And instead of beating yourself up about it, learn it. Everything's learnable. You can learn everything. Google's a friend.
1: Welcome to the Start Right Here podcast, we put the spotlight on BIPOC beauty pros and their paths to success. We share their stories along with actionable tips that you can apply to your career or your life. We invite you to subscribe, rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share it with a friend. Now let's get to the show. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about adapting your skills to meet professional growth opportunities and how culture and authenticity is an important part of one's presence at work. I am pleased to welcome Patricia Reynoso, who has been an editor, a co-author of a book. She's worked in communications and creative roles as well as digital ones, And currently, she is the Executive Director of Cultural Relevancy Engagement, North America at the Estee Lauder Companies. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you,
0: Corinne. So great to be with you.
1: I want to start just with some fun questions. As people who've worked in beauty for a long time, it's hard to think about the first product you've ever tried, but do you remember yours?
0: Yeah. I went back into my memory bank and I have a fun one for you. So the setting is New York city, 1980s. And I think it would have to be cream of nature, shampoo and conditioner. <laughs> That's what everyone used on our block to do your roller sets on Saturday mornings. And that was like the thing to get. I would have to say that that would be my first thing that
1: I ever purchased with my own money. I love it. What's the last beauty product that you tried?
0: I use so many. Obviously, I've been around so many beauty products, and I work at a beauty company now. And this is an old one, so I don't know if I'm cheating on the question, but Erin Fragrances has this beautiful scent called Amber Musk. And I got it when I was an editor, so I still have it like in my little tester vial. And I use it, and I have it on today because it reminds me of Being a beauty editor and being out and going to events and just living that editor life. So it really is a blast from the past for me. And lately I've been resurfacing it. So I would have to say like, that's like the most recent thing I've rediscovered. I found it in a travel bag and I was like, I forgot how much I love this. Let's bring this back.
1: Oh, that's a great one. And I am wearing today, I've got a B. Shapiro's, Ella's fragrances, her salt fragrance. I love her fragrances. She's a beauty editor turned fragrance maker. Bea Shapiro used to be, uh, and still does occasionally write for the times, but she's now a perfumer.
0: Oh, I remember her. Oh, that's great to know.
1: What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone?
0: There are a few things. First and foremost, I'm going to quote Rosie Perez. I interviewed her once and I asked her this question, funny enough, and she said, misery will age you faster than anything.
1: Ooh, I love that so much. (laughs) Say it again, say it again.
0: Misery will age you faster than anything else. And like you, that's exactly how I reacted. And we had to sit with that for a second. And that really is the best advice. You know, life can be miserable, but we all have the the power to shift that mindset and to just keep your sidewalk clean, like they say, and just stay in your own positive energy. And I think that is like one of the secrets of youthfulness and youthful energy.
1: Well, I love that. I'll be quoting that next. You know, everybody's going to be quoting it. Rosie Perez's that little line is going to live on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to the main questions. Was the beauty industry a destination or a detour for you?
0: Oh, it was absolutely a destination, even before I realized that it was that. It was illuminated to me fairly early on in my career or in my working years, I should say, that the beauty industry had a place for me. And so then it was a matter of how and where and when and how on earth do I navigate this and what even are the steps that I have to take to get into the beauty space and in what capacity and all of that. But it was an exciting experiment to unpack and figure out. It was like a puzzle. So for sure, a destination. It was never something that I said, you know what? I'm a teacher now. Let me try this now. And it was never about that. And having grown up with such a beauty focus in my culture, in my community, personally, all of those things, it was just wonderful to see that you could make a living out of this. I think it just is not something that's talked about, especially back then when I was coming up now, maybe, but not back then.
1: Right. And I would agree that you had to unpack it because there's no TV shows that really show the work that we've done. So you don't know what goes into that. And you might think it's easy, but it takes a lot of skill. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about your first job, not your first job in beauty, but your first job, your first professional job.
0: Yeah, again, I went back into the memory bank for this one, and I want to answer this two ways. The first job that actually paid me money to do something was when I was 14 years old, and I was growing up in New York City, and the city had this summer youth employment program that they might still have. And I remember being 12 and 13 and just counting down the years until I was old enough to be eligible to do that because. I wanted to work. I wanted to make my own money. I wanted to stop asking my parents. I had to finagle every dollar out of my dad. He would question everything that I was asking for. Mind you, I was asking for like a dollar by the Enquirer because you know I was into magazines and you know, all of that. I wasn't asking for much. And so my girlfriends and I got a job at a senior center at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, uptown in the Heights. And You know, I got my little paycheck. So that was my first taste of working life. And just seeing how proud my dad was that I had gotten my working papers and he showed everyone on the block that Patricia was working and, you know, all these things. So that really left this impression on me that work is admirable and work is something that we have to do and must do, which clearly I knew because we were humble. We did not have excess amounts of money. And so that was that first job. And then I would say my first job in the industry that eventually would become my lifelong career was at Children's Business Magazine at Fairchild Publications. And Children's Business was published by the same people who publish Women's Wear Daily. Well, back then, Women's Wear Daily and W and all those magazines. And it was the trade version of women's wear for the children's wear market. And I was an assistant, not quite editorial assistant. I think my title was assistant editor. And I worked for these amazing women who you might actually know from back in the day.
1: I do know them. (laughs) I (laughs) was like, you worked with Linda? Oh, Oh, Linda!
0: Linda was, was one of the fairy godmothers in my career. Yeah, Linda was my teacher at FIT. Wow. Linda was my teacher at FIT and she blew me away on day one. Well, night one, I was going to night school at FIT, had gone back to college and uh, happened to land in Linda's magazine journalism class at FIT. And it was the first time I heard articulated, just like I said a second ago about not knowing how, where, when, and all of those things. Linda was the first to articulate that in the classroom setting. And I was just hanging by her every word. And after class, I approached her and I was like, I want to do what you do. I want to be part of your world. How do I do it? And so eventually, Linda brought me over to children's business. And I worked with her with another wonderful woman named Tracy Mitchell, who you might know.
1: I know her as well. Yes.
0: And then obviously with Monique Greenwood, who was the editor in chief. So they were my three fairy godmothers, these amazing Black women. I just had never worked with Black women. I just The whole thing just blew me away as to the amazing people who were out there in
1: this very cool industry that I wanted to be a part of. I had no idea about that. I mean, my first job was Fairchild, too. I was a secretary. People who listen to this, I say this often. I was a secretary at Women's Wear Daily at 70 12th Street when we took obituaries over the phone. Oh,
0: my God.
1: <laughs> and had to take them down. Oh, it was a whole thing. And when the salesperson was up, you know, each salesperson would take open calls, not from their clients. And that was when you got the obituaries and you had to take them over the phone and take them down and have them laid out. It was, ooh. that was my first job. You had a great opportunity to work with some great women. And I love that. Yeah. What did you learn there that set you up for success later?
0: I learned that being yourself is, and this is so cliched, which is why I'm hesitating to say it, you know, in this day and age with Instagram quotes and all these wellness gurus and, you know, all of that, we hear that so much. But back then you had to sort of figure that out on your own. And it was the only way I knew how to be. I had dropped out of college. I made it through high school. I was an okay student, but nothing to write home about. And my family wasn't connected. My family didn't even speak English, couldn't help me. Like It was just sort of, I was on my own and I liked who I was. I liked what I represented. I liked all that I could contribute. And more importantly, I had the skill set. I knew I had the skill sets needed for the point in time. So All that being said, I felt like these three women who we just talked about at Children's Business, they saw that in me. They saw that authenticity in me. And in fact, Linda later said to me, she said, you know, many people were applying for your job, people with big degrees. But we really liked how the very first thing you said to us was, wow, I just came from helping my dad become a citizen, an American citizen. I had just been with him at immigration earlier that morning, and he had just become a citizen. And then I followed that up with this interview at Children's Business. And it was the first time it was reflected back at me, like, wow, I didn't mean to overshare or to become too personal too soon, but I just felt that I could with these women. And I did. And it turned out that they admired that about me. And obviously, of course, you temper that with professionalism and, you know, all those other things I said. So I learned that at that job. It was also my first layoff. (laughs) And Corinne, you know, if you're in this industry... Put on your armor because you will get laid off at some point. (laughs) And I did. And when it happened, it was devastating as it always is. And I had to fight for myself as best as I knew how with what I knew thus far. And I ended up getting an extension in the sense that they put me as an intern, as a summer intern with the Women's Wear Daily and W team. That's how I segued from the little corner where children's business was to the main stage, you know, with the fancy editors at Women's Wear and W. And it was because I made a very professional stink about it. I mean, looking back on it now, I'm just like, what were you doing, little girl? But I just was like, no, no, this was my dream job. I'm not leaving. I'm just not leaving. (laughs) Right.
1: (laughs) The transition from children's business to Women's Wear Daily W, what was that like?
0: Oh my goodness. You know, you realize that any big company that has several divisions, you know, we've all worked at these big publishing houses or even beauty companies. And even though it's one big family, they're definitely little, not cults, what's the word, like little groups, little clusters, and they all have their own branding and their own DNA and their own personalities. So going from my very warm, family-oriented children's business team to the Wild West over at Women's Wear, where it was about these daily deadlines and during fashion week, forget it. You're running to shows and writing reviews. And there was just always like this manic panic in that side of town, but it was also exhilarating. You know, I said, okay, this has an energy that is very much like what you see on shows about broadcasting and journalism in New York City back in the day. And so that's what it was. It was about rápido, rápido. It was just about, you know, getting on your feet and doing all of that. And sometimes my old colleagues from children's business would find me in the main pit. And they looked like fish out of water. And I now saw them as that, you know, it was like they were like from the country and they had come into the city. (laughs) That was the beginning of that culture shock. One of many in my career.
1: Yeah. But what's really interesting is that Women's Wear and Fairchild became a really important part of your career.
0: Oh, my goodness. So important. I have such love, Corinne. Like Honestly, I found an old picture of myself sitting in that pit that I posted not too long ago. And I have it actually up now on my bulletin board because it's like a family member. It really is. And whenever I talk about Fairchild and that era on my socials, the ex-coworkers come out of the woodworks, and we call each other Fair children. And I've met so many of my still, you know, friends, so many people, Jenny B fine from Women's Wear, Carrie Diamond. Dana Wood, who gave me my first job at W, Jane Larkworthy, just the list goes on and on. And I think it's a combination of that was the first. I'm nostalgic in that way. I really prize everything that's important in my life. And so it's that. And for me personally, it was also my formative years. You know, I was in my 20s. I was engaged to be married when I started at Children's Business. I left with four-year-old twins. Okay. Wow. (laughs) So a big bulk of my personal life, my real life was there. So yeah, lots of good memories and the skills I learned there. I mean, it was the ultimate school.
1: When you came to speak at my beauty biz camp years ago, you told the kids about writing a story, going undercover at a sweatshop. Oh yeah. Can you tell us about that? Because that was also a window to me into how to bring culture into the industry.
0: Oh yeah, and I take zero credit for that idea. It was not my idea. I got summoned over to the Great Wizard of Oz, which were our big editors, like Ed Doza, who was the editor in chief of Women's Wear Daily, and Patrick McCarthy, who was the editor in chief of W. These were the. They sat in the far end of the room, and I had very little dealings with them, honestly. So I got summoned. They want to see you, and I went to see them, and they said, "Okay, so we have this idea, and we want you to do it. We want you to work undercover." at a sweatshop in New York City. Well, first of all, I was thankful they weren't letting me go. By then, I was already starting to get jaded that this is just part of the cadence of working in this industry. So I was relieved about that. And then my second expression on my face was kind of like, wait, what? (laughs) And there had been a lot of news about sweatshops and factory workers and abuses in the industry. And I'm not going to quote them and say that they said I was the only Spanish speaking reporter that they had. But I'm pretty sure they said something along those lines. Like you are a natural to go do this. So here you go. Here's a contact for who's going to teach you how to sew connect with that person and take it from there and turn the story over when you're done. And it was just, my head was spinning and I remember coming home and telling my husband about this. And he's such a maniac about safety. He's just like a complete New Yorker, like always watching his back and you know all that. And he just thought it was unsafe. He was like, what? No, sweetie, this is going too far. Like what? And I saw it for what it was. It was an opportunity to do all of the things that would elevate. As I'm saying that, it sounds really deliberate. It wasn't about like, oh, this will be a career stepping stone. It was more like, this was a fun challenge. Let's do this. Let's figure this out. I'm going to learn new skill sets. I'm going to do something different. I don't want to be like everyone else. I want to really make my mark. And also, I'm loyal to the core. And my company needed me. <laughs> you know, They needed me to do this story because I was the best person for it. So that's exactly what I did. And what resulted was that that story that I did, that got a lot of attention and it's still wild. I look at that clip sometimes and I'm just like, wait, what? What did I do?
1: Yeah, I thought that doing it, whether it was your idea or not, it's a window and you're bringing the reader into a world that they only have, um, what's the right word?
0: They've only read about or imagined.
1: No, no. It's more like they're making assumptions about that world and having you bring them in as a reporter and to talk about stuff, it gives a different perspective, even if it's a business publication. Yeah. So working at Fairchild at W at that first job and then working at, was it Ladies Home Journal? Yeah. Talk to me about the differences in (laughs) in luxury.
0: (laughs) So different. So I was only at Women's Wear for about two years and I actually forget that I got that job. Because at the time, they were owned by ABC, who now owns Disney or vice versa. Anyway, the point is, ABC had a minority journalist program. And I got a call. By that point, my internship was over. I was home thinking, what the heck am I going to do next? And I got a call. And they said, we want to interview you for this program. <laughs> and they said something along the lines of, like, do you consider yourself a minority? And I was like, yes. Yes, I'm as minority as they come. And I interviewed for two roles. One at su- Supermarket News. And the other at Women's Wear Daily. And I ended up getting the Women's Wear Daily job, which was very exciting. Now, the downfall of that was that it was a one-year
1: role. Oh, okay.
0: Long story short, I ended up getting hired full-time. So I did that for a little bit. But very quickly, I realized that my passion was not in fashion. You know fashion people. They love every zipper, every hemline. And that just was not my world. So I knew I wanted to do beauty. And I ended up doing extra credit work for free for W. So for Dana Wood, I knocked on her door and I said, I would love to write beauty for you. And she said, are you sure? And I'm sure she was thinking, are you any good? So she gave me a story to write. And apparently, and I still remember her feedback. She said, you're a natural at this. I love your flow. This is great. So again, another little insight into my skill set that I packed away. And so I ended up, getting a job with Dana as a beauty editor. So that's all to say that I was a beauty editor at W Magazine. So I moved from the newspaper to the magazine and I was doing that for, I don't know, five years or so. So I was in my groove, but obviously like everyone else, I wanted to make more money. I wanted to elevate. And I got a call from Ladies Home Journal. So that's all to say that I got that call and I had to research what Ladies Home Journal was. I mean, I kind of knew that it was one of the seven sisters. I knew that it was something you see at the supermarket And at the doctor's office, but I remember being a little snobby about it. Like, I don't know about this (laughs) because I was in my W luxury world, even though I wasn't luxury, but I loved being around that high end energy, but they made a very compelling offer and I took it. And on my very last day at W, I was legit just like crying real tears because I didn't want to leave my family, quote unquote. I didn't want to leave the work that I was having so much fun with still, but I knew I had to move on. And it was a shift. It was a hard pivot. It was a steep learning curve w is about the most expensive the most niche the most weird beauty products treatments people you know all of that the more niche the better the ladies home journal had about four times the circulation size of a w and it was read by middle america you know what i thought was not that expensive my editor-in-chief would push back and was like patricia no one's going to pay thirty dollars for a makeup brush It's just not happening. So bring me something else. So I had to really adapt my criteria for what was expensive, what was luxury, what was all those things. So yeah, that
1: took a little bit of like
0: shift gear change.
1: Yeah, that's a major shift, a major shift. And just in terms of mindset. And I freelanced at one of the seven sisters at one point. What I noticed at that point, I said, this is where the mature editors work. You know, a (laughs) lot of... (laughs) It's true. Glossy. I worked it out lots of glossy magazines. Everybody's young and the balance was different is what I mean. Like there were young people, wherever I was, whatever place I freelance, but there were many more mature people that are my age now, you know, but I hadn't seen that before. So I was like, this is where they go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Very, very, very true. And the magazine was going through a redesign at that time. and They had a new editor-in-chief. She was the first new editor-in-chief in like, I don't know, 40 years or something. So again, it was a turning point for them. And I think Diane Salvatore, who was my editor-in-chief, who poached me, I think she was looking for Young Energy. But they were lovely there. I loved that job. And again, I'm still friends with so many people who I worked with there
1: and really, really warm memories about that. That's great. Now you co-authored a book with Dr. Frederick Brandt. Yeah. How did that come about? Did they come to you? And what's the difference between writing editorial stuff and working on a book?
0: Oh yeah. That was such a wild experience. That was when I was still at W Magazine And the year was 2001 or 2002. And if you remember, that's the birth really of cosmeceuticals and cosmetic dermatology. And Botox was starting to be used for cosmetic purposes, even though it was created for a medical purpose. And Dr. Brandt was the, may he rest in peace, he was the Botox baron or the king of Botox. He did so much of it for some really big people, two celebrities. And one of my old colleagues at Women's Wear Daily in the fashion pit This amazing woman named Bobby Queen.
1: Oh, yeah. Legend.
0: Yeah. And hilarious. Just so fun and funny. And she knew that I was in that world and she wanted to start seeing someone for Botox. And I recommended she meet with Dr. Brand. I thought they would get along. Anyway, long story short, she loved him. He loved her. And I guess he expressed to her that he wanted to do a book. Turns out that Bobby Brown, Bobby Brown, Bobby Queen's sister, was a literary agent. So Bobby Queen facilitated that relationship between Dr. Brandt and the agent. And they had a writer already on board, but I don't know what happened with this writer, but it was a very last minute. And I was very clear that I was a second choice, but it was sort of like, shoot, we have a deadline. We need a writer. You know this field really well, but you're an unproven writer, unpublished writer in terms of the book space. Let's test you out. So they gave me the proposal. I looked it over. I treated it like a story. I treated it in terms of what I thought was missing and all of that. Turned it back in. They were like, great, let's do this. And we had very little time to turn it around. So that's how that came to be. Obviously, I knew Dr. Brandt, so that helped, you know, having covered him in the magazine. And in terms of the differences is the first is the most obvious thing. It's so much longer. When you really think about 50,000 words... <laughs> I mean, that's bananas even still today. And, you know, at most my stories at W were 800 words. And here I had to really stretch it out. So just the building of the content was very different. And obviously it was his book. You know, I was a co-writer. I had to borrow his knowledge and interpret his knowledge. I was shepherding his expertise, but also obviously with my own voice. They they hired me for my voice and that's what I did. And then just fitting it in, you know, I had a full-time job. My babies were babies. They were two years old. And (laughs) my two-year-old twins who would follow me around the house as I'm trying to write this book and finish it. Many stressful nights, but I'm so proud of that. That is another gamble that paid off big time. Because again, my ever-cautious husband was like, sweetie, really? Like, do you have time for that? Do you need to do this? And I said, I just feel like this is a good thing for me to do. And so I still am. I'm very proud of that book. Yeah, you
1: should be. And the fact that you did that, having a full-time job and young children is admirable because writing a book is no small feat. No. Even if you have none of that. (laughs) Let's talk about your leap to corporate beauty. The first time. (laughs) What was the biggest culture shock?
0: The biggest culture shock, honestly, Corinne, was that it was not fun. It was a nine to five- corporate office job and i say that now with love and amusement and all that but talk about culture shock as a beauty editor and you can imagine especially back then we were treated like princesses We were princesses. We had car service. We had little gifts all day long. We had flowers sent to us for the smallest things. We had, you know, our pictures everywhere. I mean, we were princesses and hardworking princesses, but still there was a joy and a celebration to what we did as editors. And once you're inside, even though it was a beautiful brand and I was very proud to be there I would show up, I would sit at my desk, I would do what I had to do, and I would leave at the end of the day. And there was no little gift deliveries in the middle of the day. No one was asking me to lunch, you know, at the Four Seasons. So I think that was just when I realized, okay, this is real work. We were working before, again, I don't want my beauty editors coming after me, but I felt like I had arrived at the grown-ups table similarly to what you said about like the mature editors being in the service books, this felt like that too. Like, Oh wow. Okay. This is the big leagues
1: in a whole different way. Right. So it just requires that you actually think about your skills differently and how you interact with people differently. But before I ask any more questions about this, I have to co-sign on when you've been treated like a princess and you've gone to all the expensive restaurants, your taste levels are really, really high. And then when that goes away, (laughs) And you're not going there anymore (laughs) because you know what the prices are and you're not spending it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no. Like that when it's on your own dime, it's very different. So yeah, so that was it. But I'm glad I have a million
1: other amazing, positive things to say about
0: that experience.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about what was joyous about that experience because there were some joyous moments. So
0: Oh, so many. I mean, the very first, again, since I'm such a people- person. Also in the sense that I love the coworkers who I just admire so much. So I was brought over to Lancome by Carrie Diamond, who I mentioned a minute ago as a former Women's Wear Daily colleague. And the reason I said yes is because I knew that in her hands, we were going to do fun stuff. So like while the day-to-day was, you know, officey, she had a big vision for what the beauty industry needed and how we could contribute to that. And so when she hired me or when she reached out to me, she said, I want you to come work with me at Lancôme. And I burst out laughing and I said, wait, but aren't you in PR? And she said, yeah. And I said, I'm not a publicist, Carrie. And she said, who cares? Neither am I. And so that really opened up the door in terms of my own thinking as to what the role entailed and what I thought it was. And so true to her word, Carrie really maximized my skill set, which she was familiar with my writing, my editor connections, my culture, to be honest. At the time, I had a blog, a family blog, and she knew of it. And she said, the fact that you're embracing digital, everyone's running away from it and really threatened by it. You're not. You're doing it. You're going there. And so that felt exciting and new, even though I had nothing to compare to prior. And then also, remember, that was the time of the digital influencer. Carrie signed the YouTuber Michelle Phan as the industry's first video makeup artist for a brand. So I was part of that. Like, I'm really proud of that. I was part of that. And I worked closely with Michelle. I worked on her videos. I did personal appearances with her at Sephora. And I saw the massive lines of fans that had come to see her live.
1: That was special. That was a special time as well. And then when you were there and I was at Essence, we got to do a couple of great things. Oh, yeah. I think the first shoot with Arlenis Sosa, in essence, that was major, major, major. And you helped make that happen. And I was so excited about that. And then the other thing was for our first beauty awards, we awarded one of the chemists who had worked on the shade expansion. And you and I worked on just the story of that and how that came about. We pulled that together as a duo. So that was lovely.
0: Yeah, that was definitely a highlight. And again, that goes back to Carrie's foresight in hiring someone like me who understood what you, Corinne, editor at Essence, needed and wanted and found interesting. And then also me shepherding the brand, the Lancome brand and whatever else was going on in the organization with care and love and all of that, and just bringing the two together. And you're a thousand percent right, Arlenis and the chemists. Like I see those chemists on commercials now. And I'm just like, wow, Corinne and I made that happen. Yeah, like, it's really wild. That's wild. So pure joy there too. And again, just these memories that you almost forget you did. And you're like, oh, wow, like that was pretty badass.
1: (laughs) It really was. Now, let's talk about this other wonderful opportunity that you received that took you away from Lancôme, actually. So you had the opportunity to serve as the top editor of a publication. Pretty close to your heart, Glam Latina, for kind of How did that experience differ from your other jobs?
0: That was personal. Glam beleza Latina was personal. This was, you know how we talk about our glow up? That was, I think, in many ways, it was a stage in my life that I was at. I gauged my career by how old my children were. So at this point, they were 13 years old, you know, about to enter high school. And as they were evolving, I was evolving, my family was evolving. And I said, okay, Patricia, what do you want to do? By this point, I was at home I was happy and it was a good job and I had a good title and all those things. But I said, I need to do something Latina. I just need to. I had freelanced a ton, which is great. I'm proud that I did that. I wrote a lot for Latina Magazine. I did a few things. I always kept my finger on the pulse of Latin or even multicultural, period. But I wanted to do it full time. And I missed editorial. I think what we love can never really be too separated from us. and At that point, I said, okay, enough of this. Yeah, I'm done. I was ready to throw it all away to do a really fun editorial role. And so long story short, I found out that Condé Nast was doing this project. I was very friendly with the teams at Glamour. You know, they knew, they were smart enough to know that there are very few of us in the industry who can write, who can edit, who have the contacts, who understand the culture intimately, you know, all those things. So with all due respect, I was a natural to be brought in and interviewed for that. And so once I landed there, I thought I had arrived, Corinne. I was like, that's it. Like, that's it. I'm here. I'm going to be here for the next 30 years. I'm going to make this the vogue of Latinidad and it's going to be amazing. It's going to kick ass. So I was very personally invested. I was very personally invested. I felt that it was a green light for our community to start telling its stories. I was going to shepherd that. And I did. But as you know, back to our theme of all good things come to an end, they closed it down after two years. So for those two years, I really tried to distinguish what we were doing from what already existed out in the market. I was trying to educate my bosses. Because at the end of the day, I reported into Glamour magazine and they were wonderful, but I was cheerleading for my brand inside my own family, my own company. Yeah, Like, come on guys, like we need to do this and we need to do that. And I just wasn't seeing the traction. So I kind of smelled that that was coming close to an end. But still, when it did, it really devastated me
1: big time. And it's unfortunate because if we look at population shifts, there's more need now for a publication like Mm Beleza than ever. And we hear people in Espanol go digital as well. It's like These are not good business (laughs) moves.
0: A thousand percent. I think ultimately it's just, it's hard. And I think the publishing industry as a whole was already suffering. So it's not like everyone else was thriving and doing gangbuster business and we were being treated like the stepchild. I don't think it was that. I think the industry was shifting. This was in 2015 and, you know, five, six years later, it's still shifting as we can see. So I think it's just following the reader where she is. And they just weren't ready to focus on it right then and there. But still, my office is littered with Glambelleza Latina covers. That's still very much a part of my identity and my brand. And I'm really proud to have done that. And again, I brought co-workers with me. And I'm still working with a lot of the same people that I met there that I love and adore.
1: That's a wonderful thing. So part of rising through the ranks is investing in talent and building teams. And I love the fact that you kind of continue that legacy because you worked with Carrie and then she brought you along. It's really important. I can't stress that enough.
0: Yeah. It's my favorite part of the jigsaw puzzle of figuring out who can I tap to bring forward, you know, the
1: journey with me as I continue my career. Wonderful. Let's talk about moving to Estee Lauder companies. When you first joined, you were in more creative roles. How did that vary from editorial in terms of your scope of work?
0: La Belleza closed. I then spent two years freelancing, doing really fun things, but not tethered to one role. And I'm very much a working for the man person. I joke about this with my friends. I like full-time jobs. I have zero desire to be my own business owner. I love getting my benefits and my paycheck. I just like being part of that. So I felt that although I was producing income and doing cool things during that hiatus I was really eager to land somewhere permanent and let's go let's do this all over again so I ended up with a copy director role at Bobby Brown so that's a creative role that I had at the Estee Lauder companies and back then it's changed a little bit now but back then if you're an editor and you're thinking all right I've exhausted editorial I've done all the things magazines are closing what do I do now where do I write and still be part of the beauty industry copywriting felt like the place that made the most sense. I could do PR, I've done it, I did it at Lancôme, but you know, I still want to write, so where do I do that? And so I ended up pursuing a role that I was very happy to get, thrilled to get, at Bobby Brown. And what I learned, and I know you've had Tia, Tia Williams on your show, and uh, she and I have talked about this, copywriting is a very different form of writing. It's not the writing I do, have done, like to do, <laughs> I'm good at, <laughs> None of those things. So I learned that very early on. And so already my wheels were turning. Like, all right, what's next? But again, when I think of that memory and that time and place, I'm very clear. Like, all right, that is not where my skill sets lie. I did a good job, don't get me wrong. But I I understand. It's a very different, you're working with, they're not your own words, essentially. You have to stick to a certain communications, cadence, just all of it. So that was my first. Entry into creative at a beauty brand. And that's my memory of it. But again, still have my friends there. You know, when we get back to work, I'm excited to see them again. But yeah, that was my experience.
1: But then you had the opportunity to shift into a different role. Tell me about that.
0: Yeah. So, one thing I admire about myself is that once I realize, like, all right, this is great, but it's not exactly for me, you know, I don't linger. I don't like to linger because I like to give everything. My all, I think we all do. I think we all want to be excited to show up for work and do what we are good at. So I wanted to land in that headspace again. And one thing I was missing desperately was my community, my Latino community, my multicultural community. Our company is incredible in that we have employee resource groups, ERGs. And very quickly I aligned with um, the Latino ERG at Estee Lauder Companies. And through that community, I met some incredible people I'm sure you know MC Gonzalez Noguera. Remember MC? Yes. MC was with our company and she was part of that community. And so I reconnected with MC. MC introduced me to this amazing woman who is now my boss. So I'll tell you about her. So it was through the ERG, through finding community and finding like-minded people within my company is where I started to feel like myself again. And this woman who's now my boss, she very much like Carrie put it in my head that I could do what she does. So it was a similar conversation. Like, I want you to come work with me. And I was like, but I don't know what you do. And she said, I'm in corporate marketing, but don't worry, we'll figure it out. And so I followed her because I liked her and this felt right. And so that's how I pivoted to this corporate role in North
1: America. I'm going to just remind the audience what their role is, because you just recently got a bump up So it's Executive Director, Cultural Relevancy Engagement at Estee Lauder Companies.
0: Yes, for North America. What do you do? Good question. And the reason it's hard even for me to just have it roll off my tongue is that there's no parallel as far as I know. You know, I haven't bothered to research it really, but I just know my spidey senses tell me that the kinds of things that we're doing with this team are just new and haven't been done and are new ways of thinking about storytelling and what we call commercial innovation. So it's basically taking the same product that we know and love and has been around for many years and giving it a new light especially for consumers of color and diverse communities. So we want ultimately our consumers to see themselves in our portfolio of brands. Instead of walking on by when you see one of our products, you know, you stop because you think, okay, they did that thing. They showed up where I was. They met me where I was. They were part of a conversation that I am a part of. They are talking to the people who I look up to and admire. So that's our role in a nutshell. We help our brands identify these opportunities. But I am going to tell you exactly what I do because I did just get promoted, which is very exciting. And my title changed a little bit. So I am a cultural relevancy engagement, which means engaging the brands and engaging thought leaders to make sure that our portfolio is culturally relevant which is all the things I just talked about. I work with North America. So we're a global organization, obviously, but I'm very focused on U.S. and Canada and to make sure that our entire organization is fed this cultural education so that they can make decisions that will help them be more connective to diverse communities. So I help them with, you know, where to play and how to win with all diverse consumers. And by the way, we identify diversity as multi-ethnic, ageless. So the 40, 50 plus culturally, generational, regional nuances, you know, understanding that in my case, I'm Latina, but I'm very different from a Latina from the West Coast. I'm from the East Coast. So having the brands understand that, you know, new storytelling guidance, bringing these products to life and also identifying like who they should be working with. And that's one of my favorite parts of the role too, is putting together these initiatives and really scoping out the lay of the land with editors and the editorial landscape and thought leaders and saying, Hey, brand X, you really need to connect with this person because she's doing amazing things out there. So that's a little bit of a snippet about what I do, but think of us like a consultancy that the brands know to come to like, Hey, we're doing essence fest here's what we're doing with this brand. What do you guys think? Let's poke holes on it. Let's think who else we should be working with or how we could look at this differently and so on and so forth. So that's the mouthful, but every day is different. I'm always jumping from brand to brand. And the big difference with this new title is something called the culture report, which I believe you're going to ask me about because
1: that is just the most unique thing I've ever worked on. So I'll let you ask me the question. (laughs) No, no, no. So all I'm going to say is tell me about it because that was my next question. But let's just go into that because I think this role plays to all of your strengths in such a unique way. And then adding this culture report that lets you showcase some writing just is like icing on the cake.
0: Yeah. I think the last two years that we've all gone through has made us all be super grateful for what we have and what we are fortunate to be doing. And this is one area of my life where I'm like, thank you, universe, because The worst feeling is when you feel like you're in a role and you know you could be doing more, but people around you don't see it, don't care, because that's not the right fit. I guess that's what a fit is. And this is the perfect fit because this role was customized to me, pretty much. And it's wild to me. Like, what have I done to deserve this? And Alicia is my boss, who I mentioned earlier. And very early on in our full-time collaboration together, she said, what do you want to do? Like, what will make you happy? Like, how will you thrive? How will you feel like you're yourself? Cause she's an admirer of mine. I mean, and I'm an admirer of hers and she was very frank. She's like, you are incredible. And I want to make sure that you feel that we know you're incredible. So how amazing is that to have your leader say that to you, A, B to have her recognize that the business would benefit from what I bring to the table. Anyway, so I said to her, I said, I would love to do a magazine. How cool would it be to have an Estee Lauder Company's magazine where we share all of the cultural knowledge that you and I hold and that we learn and we accumulate throughout our journeys and our meetings. And she's Mexican-American from the West Coast. I'm Dominican-American from the East Coast. We're both cultural students. We pay attention to what's going on. And anyway, that's all to say that she was like, I love it. Let's do it. Like Carrie Diamond is one of those visionaries in my life where she saw a wide open space. If it doesn't exist, build it. And this is who we're gonna staff it with. And so I'm the editor in chief of the Culture Report. It's an internal only, so I can't share it yet, but it's internal and it's for our organization to learn and get inspired and hear from all these amazing people, both internally and externally. We've done three issues last year, We also have panels that go along with that. We do an editorial mailer that goes along with that. So it's hitting our audience, which are the thought leaders and the editors, and ultimately their readers and our consumers, with seeing the Estee Lauder portfolio of brands in a new way. And yeah, to your point, I'm writing, I'm editing, I'm directing a creative team, small creative team, but still, I'm in my words. We featured people like John Leguizamo. In the coming issue, we'll have some amazing people as well. Just everyone said yes. Everyone's gotten on board. And I've been able to interview editors, so many amazing editors, Nina Garcia, Carla Martinez de Salas from Vogue Mexico, the list goes on. And so taking what we know journalism is and editorial is and just shifting the reader a little bit.
1: Well, I'm so glad that you're doing that because this seems like the right fit. It calls on all of your talent and your authenticity is your superpower. Thank you. For my last question. No, well, it's not my last question. It's my next to last question. You work for Beauty Come Before Living, but you have beauty enthusiasts in your life. Your sister and your daughter. Who's the most beauty obsessed?
0: Oh, my goodness. My gal pals. I thought about this question and I love it. And I actually conferred with the two of them beforehand. I was like, all right, guys, I'm doing this thing. My sister remembers you. So she was really thrilled to be even mentioned. We're all beauty obsessed in our own ways. We all have our lanes. For my sister, Irene, she is a wellness champion, wellness and fitness. She discovered her own beauty through picking up running. So when she started running, Um, is when she realized that she was capable of pushing her body and doing what she used to think was impossible. So she shared with me that her very first race, she wanted to feel confident when she ended because she had no idea how she would do. And so she had on tinted moisturizer and mascara. So like beauty is a part of that journey. And then in the years that have passed, God, I forget the number now, but she's done something like 20 races and six marathons. I mean, she's our fitness superstar in our family. And so for her, it's about treating mind, body, and soul. So she loves herself. That's her big mantra. I treat myself because I love myself. I love that. Yeah. My daughter, Grace, who is now 21, has a similar mindset. She's very much about spreading positivity and using creativity as a form of expression to uplift herself and others. She's a musician. She's an editor herself at college, all of those things. And she has a beauty Instagram account where she can do very intricate looks. So Grace, out of the three of us, is the most skilled. (laughs) She can do a whole thing. But again, it's very much about inner beauty. And then with me, I think I approach it from an analytical point of view. Being a beauty editor, having spent so much time with dermatologists and plastic surgeons and cosmetic derms, I can spot my own shifting beauty. So I just sort of tend to like dissect and analyze a little more and then collectively i would say the three of us we come from a very beauty filled culture you know the latina culture it's not a stereotype we were told to look good to feel good to represent our family and our countries of origin and all that stuff all that stuff is true so it's vanity a little bit you want to look good but it's also like come on look good it's a sign of respect and it's a sign of you know
1: belonging I love that. And so I have to ask the question I always ask you in private on here.
0: What is the book, Patricia? Oh, you're in the book. Okay. You know, and I'll take this. If you want to use this time to guide me like you've done so many years before. So for those who don't know, I've had this dream vision of doing a book about how I created this blueprint for a career using my culture as my source of strength and the lessons I've learned along the way and how I continue to be resilient and pivot. So that's a lot to pack into one book. So I think for me, it's sort of an organization thing where I'm just like, Oh, which is the lead story here. I have many chapters written, I have a proposal pretty much almost ready to go. And it's written in my head. And a part of me is like, I had to live all these experiences to see how the story ends, in a way, because if my book is focused on my career journey, I've had so many stops and goes and things keep happening. But now that I'm here in this role, I'm of a certain age. <laughs> I'm not getting any younger. Now is the time to just put a bow on it and really share these stories.
1: Yeah. And for the audience, this is an ongoing question. Every time I see Patricia, where's the book? Where's the book? How's, the book? How's the book? If you've ever, and I might link to some of your old articles. If you've ever read like a food article by Patricia or- Anything that she mentions culture, she takes you into her world. So every time I read something of hers, I want more. So that's why I'm always asking for her book. You've done a lot of writing projects. What's one that you're really excited about?
0: Well, the most recent one that I did that got me really excited and scared, but like in a good way, is I contributed a chapter to Linda Lopez's book on AOC. So Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, and this book is an homage to AOC and her in the sense of what she's contributing to female culture, to Latina culture, and women of color culture. And so Linda Lopez, J-Lo's sister, and I have a pretty good relationship because she was a contributor of mine at Glam Belleza Latina back at the magazine. And she reached out one day, we went out to lunch, and she said she was working on this project and would I be interested in contributing a chapter? And I was so honored and taken aback. But my next immediate thought was, I care about things, but politics is not a subject that I speak easily about and breezily about. I'm not an expert. But when she said it was about her significance to women of color, specifically Latinas, I said, okay, I got this. So I found the parallels between AOC's uprising and upbringing to my own. So I'd love for you to read the chapter. It was really beautiful. And I was able to pay homage to my parents. I talk about my dad a little bit here on this podcast, and my dad features really prominently in my chapter in Linda's book. And I got to do it with amazing women, some of whom you might know, Corinne, as well. So the anthology came out last year, and it was awesome. Again, that sits proudly next to my Dr. Brandt book.
1: Okay, so we're down to our starting five, our final question. As we close, I'd love it if you can give our listeners five tips on adapting your skills for new environments. How can we be adaptable?
0: Be ready for change get comfortable where you are, but always have it in the back of your mind that everything could shift and change. And we're at the whims of the world sometimes, and it's not in our control. So pivot gracefully, stay humble. And by that, I mean, not only don't be a jerk, but also it means stay humble to what you don't know. And instead of beating yourself up about it, learn it. Everything's learnable. You can learn everything. Google's a friend. I would say, be very clear on your skill sets and your talents. You know, for so long, I beat myself up over the things I didn't know how to do or I wasn't naturally good at. And very recently, I realized that I'm good at these five things. And you know what? That's enough. (laughs) I don't need to be good at everything. So really playing to your strengths, continuing to network. I know that it's not easy. It's not fun sometimes. And it looks many different ways. But it is so important to stay connected to people that you've met along the way People have short memories and it's just good to check in. And it also is a field endeavor as well. And what's the last thing? I don't know if I can think of a fifth. I guess culture and authenticity, like Corinne just said, that is your strength. That is your superpower while also being yourself. I know sometimes we have to code switch. We have to do those things. But also knowing that you have the skill set and you're really proud of how you do your work. Like Gina Rodriguez once told me, be so good that you cannot be ignored.
1: And I do believe that that's important as well. Yeah. These quotes are great. Yeah. Can't be ignored. That's it. And my friends, you are so good. You can't be ignored. Oh, as are you. (laughs) Oh, Patricia, I can't thank you enough for joining me. I mean, I know you, but I learned some new things today. So I just enjoyed it. It was just a delight to talk to you.
0: Same here. Thank you for reaching out. You've been on my list of people to spend more time with. So I'm glad that this happened naturally and organically. So super excited. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to the Start Right Here podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, or review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or share it with a friend. Remember, there is more than one way to the top but all that is required is for you to take the first step so we invite you to start right here remember to check out our newsletter the last word from start right here on it we offer additional information on taking a seat at the table or building one when it comes to beauty and inclusion you can go to thebeautytable.substack.com or check the link in the show notes.